0: Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today, we continue with our series on Explorer James Cook. Quick note for today's episode. I am recovering from a sinus and chest cold, so if my voice sounds a little ragged, you are not mishearing anything. Not a big deal, but I just want to warn you, as a cold like this can make my narration a bit uneven. So, last time, we wrapped up Cook's epic first voyage, in which he circumnavigated the world. Cook had done some pretty impressive things. Let's do a rundown. One, he had reached Tahiti and explored the surrounding society islands. Two, he had been the first European to reach New Zealand, after Abel Tasman, and had circumnavigated the two main islands, proving it was not part of Terra Australis. And three, speaking of Terra Australis, he had ventured south of New Zealand and found no evidence of the hidden southern continent. Four, he had become the first European to reach eastern Australia, and proceeded to map almost the entire eastern coastline. Five, he had gone through the Torres Strait, which separates Australia and New Guinea, and proved the two landmasses were not connected. And finally, he had continued back to England, circumnavigating the world. That is pretty amazing stuff. And as I said last time, if Cook had cashed in his exploration ships at this time, we'd still consider him one of the great naval explorers of the age. But there are a lot more discoveries in the cards. Almost as soon as Cook had returned to England, there was chatter about heading back to the South Seas, and finding out once and for all if Terra Australis actually existed. Naturalist Joseph Banks had taken up the mantle to lead such an expedition, with Cook handling the sailing part of things. The fear in England was that other nations, such as France and Spain, would press into the territories Cook had just visited and lay claim to them. Well, Banks would back out of the expedition when he deemed the accommodations for him and his retinue were not up to his standards. Fined by Cook and the Admiralty, the scientific trappings of the expedition were thus shed, making Cook's upcoming voyage one almost strictly of exploration and discovery. As a reminder, go to ExplorersPodcast.com and you can see maps of Cook's first and second voyages. It's not a bad thing to look at them to help you orient your mind as to what we're going to talk about. So, our story takes us up to the summer of 1772. Joseph Banks and the entire scientific element were gone, leaving the upcoming expedition a military enterprise. For this, Cook had two ships. Let us talk about them and their crews. Cook's flagship, which he would command, was Resolution, a converted cargo ship built in Whitby, England by Thomas Fishburne, who had built Cook's first ship, the Endeavour. While not fast or made for combat, Cook trusted the ship to withstand the rugged voyage that lay ahead. Resolution was 111 feet long and 35 feet wide, or 34 by 11 meters, making her a little bigger than Endeavour. For armaments, she had a dozen six-pound cannons plus another dozen half-pound swivel guns. The ship carried a total of 112 people, including 90 seamen, 18 marines, and a handful of civilians. 20 of the crew were veterans of the Endeavour expedition, including Isaac Smith, the cousin of Cook's wife. Some of the crew members who will play a part in our upcoming adventures include Lieutenants Robert Cooper and Charles Clerk, plus Joseph Gilbert, the ship's master. One of the midshipmen was 15-year-old George Vancouver, who will go on to be quite the explorer himself. Clerk, a likable and engaging young man, would become Cook's most trusted officer. The expedition did have a few civilians, as science was not completely ignored on this voyage. This included artist William Hodge and German botanist-slash-philosopher-slash-minister Johann Reinhold Forster and his son George. Forster would become the most despised man on the expedition. He was a humorless, vain and rude man, and he was almost thrown overboard, assaulted, and even arrested during his time on resolution. Another civilian I want to mention is William Wales, an astronomer. Wales was a clever and amiable man, One of the chief reasons he was brought along was to look after a brand new instrument, a marine chronometer designed by John Harrison, the foremost clockmaker of his age. The new chronometer was a clock that could be used on a sailing vessel and kept accurate time. Tests had shown that it had been accurate from day to day to within a tenth of a second. This is huge because one of the biggest issues facing mariners was trying to determine accurate longitude, the east-west direction of the Earth. To do this properly, you needed to have the correct time. Even a small mistake can mess up a calculation. A clock on a ship had to be unaffected by variations in temperature, pressure, and humidity, and it had to resist corrosion to salt air and be able to function on board a constantly moving ship. Early attempts at a marine chronometer were large and clunky and plagued by technical issues. Harrison overcame these obstacles when he produced, with the help of his son William, a chronometer called the H4. It was small and highly accurate. Harrison's innovative chronometer proved to be a game changer in the world of exploration. It would provide ships with the ability to accurately record the longitude of their locations anywhere in the world. As a note, Cook would not have an H-4 on his upcoming voyage. Instead, he would have a Larkham Kendall AK-1, which is a copy of the H-4. Anyhow, resolution would be fully stocked and prepped for the long voyage ahead. There would be two years of rations, including 60,000 pounds of biscuits, 30,000 pounds of salt beef, 60,000 pounds of salt pork, 19 tons of beer... 642 gallons of wine, 1,400 gallons of rum and spirits, 20,000 pounds of sauerkraut, and 30 gallons of carrot marmalade, which had recently been identified to help fight scurvy. There were also varying amounts of salted cabbage, cheese, oatmeal, butter, flour, raisins, and much, much more. Now, we can't forget that Cook had two ships for this expedition. The second was Adventure, which was similar in size to Cook's previous vessel, Endeavor. We don't have the details about Adventure like we do for Resolution. But we know that she had ten four-pound cannons, plus a dozen half-pound swivel guns. She had a crew of 81. The ship's captain was Tobias Furneaux, a 36-year-old Royal Navy veteran. Furneaux had sailed with Samuel Wallace on his circumnavigation of the world several years earlier, and he was the first European to set foot in Tahiti. Cook had wanted John Gore, from the Endeavour, to command adventure, but Gore was unavailable. Furneaux, however, seemed like a solid pick to fill the spot. He was experienced and had a solid reputation. We will talk about some of the other men on both Resolution and Adventure as they are introduced into our narrative. And so, as Cook got ready to depart on his second great voyage, his wife gave birth to a son, George. Cook only spent two weeks with the baby and his family before leaving for another long stretch. Sadly, it was the only time Cook would ever have with George, who died just four months later. Cook said bye to Elizabeth and his boys on June 21, 1772 and sailed Resolution to Plymouth, where he met up with Adventure. There, the final touches on the expedition were completed. Food, gear, and provisions were brought on board, as well as livestock, and the crew was filled out. It was not uncommon for men to desert at this stage of an expedition, as the thought of spending two or three years away from home became a reality. However, the allure of working with the now-famous James Cook and steady pay meant there were plenty of willing men ready to fill the slots in the expedition's rosters. Now, before Cook departs, I want to go over his plans for the first part of his journey, which he told no one else, Cook was going to sail south, way south. He would stop in Cape Town in South Africa and then push into the unknown waters where he knew he could find cold and bad weather. Last time, Cook reached 40 degrees south, but this time he would go further, to 50 and 60 degrees south, maybe more if the ocean allowed it. His orders said to go to as high of a latitude as possible, and he intended to follow those orders. At that point, the two ships would sail directly east, essentially keeping as far south as they could go. They would follow this course all the way past Australia, and then strike out for Queen Charlotte Sound in New Zealand. The idea was that if Terra Australis existed, Cook was not going to miss it. And let's be clear, Cook didn't think that he would find Terra Australis. But to him, proving it wasn't there was just as important as actually finding it. Let's remember that Cook was now 43 years old. He was older, sterner, more focused than ever before. But in a lot of ways, he never gave up the mindset of a surveyor. He wanted to put everything and everywhere he went into perspective, He didn't want to just show where something was, he wanted to show where everything was in relation to everything else. It is the mind of a mapmaker, not a man searching for some famous lost continent. But one thing I want to mention is that Cook did understand his place in the world. He saw himself as an explorer, and he knew exactly how much he had done to date and what he could do in the future. Cook was not an egoless man, not by a long shot. He wanted to be the greatest explorer in history. Resolution Adventure set sail from Plymouth Sound on July 13, 1772. The first destination was the Madeira Islands, which are southwest of Portugal. The voyage would be uneventful, save for one incident that occurred on July 22nd That is when three Spanish warships spotted the English vessels. They sent a shot across the bow of adventure to force the two ships to halt. Cook feared the worst. While Spain and Great Britain were not at war, that did not preclude the two sides from harassing one another. The Spanish might decide to search the English ships and seize critical supplies on some flimsy excuse, and there was always the threat of impressment. The Spanish taking needed crew to serve their own vessels. This was not uncommon. However, Cook's fears were unfounded. The Spanish asked about the destination of the ships and the nature of their voyage, and when they found out it was James Cook sailing to Madeira, they quickly sent them on their way. It seems that Cook's fame had spread, and the Spanish were admirers of his work. The voyage to the Madeiras would allow Cook to put resolution to test, and the results were fantastic. Cook had nothing but praise for the converted cargo vessel. At Madeira, the ships took on more supplies, including wine, fruit, beef, and onions. The expedition's botanist, Johann Reinhold Forster, and his son George, headed out and collected specimens, just as Joseph Banks and Daniel Solander had done on the Endeavour expedition. From Madeira, it was south. There was a brief stop for supplies in the Cape Verde Islands, and then on to Cape Town at the southern tip of Africa. During this time, the men of Resolution quickly came to understand how Cook was going to run the ship. The big focus was on the health of the men, and for many of the ship's crew, it would be a rude awakening. Regarding diet, Cook demanded that his men eat their meals, including fresh meat and sauerkraut. The latter was especially hated by the men, but Cook insisted each member of the crew eat it as a way to stave off scurvy. The other big focus was cleanliness, The ship was cleaned regularly, the decks and walls scrubbed with vinegar, and the men were required to wash themselves and their clothing regularly. Bedding was routinely brought out on the deck and aired out. At Madeira, some of the men would acquire monkeys as pets. Cook ordered them all tossed overboard so their feces didn't pollute the ship. This attention to detail was not common in the Royal Navy, but for Cook, it was the norm, and after avoiding scurvy throughout his last voyage, it's hard to argue with the man. However, Cook's track record did not always impress the men, who were often set in their ways. On resolution, this was not much of a problem. Cook would cut off a man's rum rations if he refused to comply with orders, or order a flogging. Such threats usually did the trick. However, such discipline was not the order of the day aboard adventure. Cook ordered Captain Furneaux to follow his lead, but Furneaux was not a visionary. To him, the traditional ways of the Navy were good enough. Scurvy and other illnesses were simply the cost of doing business. So when Cook gave him orders regarding food and cleaning, those instructions were passed on to the crew, but no one forced the men to comply. It didn't help that Furneau lacked a backbone. The man didn't like confrontation, and thus he just shrugged when the men rebelled against eating sauerkraut or washing their clothing. Ironically, Furneaux thought Cook ran a ship lacking in discipline. Regarding this idea, author Martin Durgard, in his biography of Cook, Farther Than Any Man, makes an interesting observation, saying that despite all this seeming lack of discipline, It is always Cook's crew who is more efficient than any other ship's crew. The morale was better and the health was better. In many ways, Cook assigned responsibility to his men at all levels and expected them to comply. If they didn't, there were repercussions. He empowered his crew. Perhaps it was part of Cook's background as a common sailor. He had just that right touch that balanced reward and punishment, backed up by success. In the end, Cook's men mostly trusted and respected him, and he trusted them and respected them right back. It made for a crew that would follow their boss to the gates of hell if requested. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly The expedition put into Cape Town on October 30th. Cook was disappointed to find some issues on adventure with regards to the health of the crew. Two of Furneaux's midshipmen had mysteriously died on the voyage, and his first lieutenant was so sick he had to be sent home. This would force Cook to transfer Jem Burney, an able young midshipman, from resolution to adventure. In Cape Town, the ships underwent routine inspections and repairs, and more supplies were purchased and loaded onto the vessels. Also, the expedition had an addition when Cook agreed to bring on board Anders Sparman, an eager young Swedish naturalist and doctor befriended by the Forsters. In South Africa, Cook would be given all the latest intelligence. This included rumors that a French expedition was exploring the exact waters that Cook intended to sail. It was said they had found land. A foreign threat to the South Seas, Australia, and any newly discovered lands was very real to England. The French were saying that they had been to Tahiti first, and it was their land to claim and the Spanish, who sailed the Pacific waters between the Americas and Manila, were always a threat. And we can't forget about the Dutch. While their power in the Far East was waning, they were still the most important economic entity in the region and had claims to Australia and Tasmania. This all added a sense of urgency to Cook's upcoming voyage. A note here. At this time, there really was a French expedition out there in the southern waters of the Indian Ocean searching for Terra Australis. It was led by Eves Joseph de Kerguelen Tremorac, I probably said that really badly, a nobleman sent by the King of France to find the great southern continent. Kerguelen would go on to find some desolate islands in the area, but nothing much else. Now, I've talked about Cook's plans to sail south as far as he could manage, and then east, but let me give you a bit more detail. The first destination of Cook's was a place called Cape Circumcision, an island or landmass reportedly discovered in 1739 by French explorer Jean-Baptiste Charles Beauvais. This island was supposedly found at a latitude of 54 degrees south, about 1500 miles or 2400 kilometers south of Cape Town. The longitude, the east-west location, was a bit of a mystery. Beauvais had not mapped his discovery properly, and thus no one could find his island if it even existed. However, if it did exist, it could be a hint of something bigger, and thus Cook wanted to investigate. After that, he would then head east, taking advantage of west-to-east prevailing winds and explore the southern waters between Africa and Australia. Cook's two ships departed Cape Town on November 22nd, heading due south in search of what today we call Bove Island. It wasn't long before the cold and storms reared their unwelcome heads. By the end of November, the ships had sighted icebergs for the first time. Called ice islands by the crew, these only grew larger and larger as the ships moved south. The sheer size of some of the bergs was awe-inspiring. The ships passed the 40-degree south mark and entered the area today we call the Roaring Forties. The men wrapped themselves in jackets and put on thick pants. The bitter cold, hard rain and hail were constant issues. The men afraid to slip on the icy decks and end up in the frigid waters, where survival was unlikely. The fog was also an issue. One day, Wales and Forrester took out one of the smaller boats to test water temperatures and currents and ended up lost for more than two hours in the thick mist. And with each passing day, the conditions only got worse. Ice formed on the rigging, and much of the livestock purchased in Cape Town, pigs and sheep and chickens, died due to the cold. Lt. Charles Clerk wrote very succinctly that it was, quote, "...very disagreeable weather," end quote. As the ships neared the 50-degree south mark, you have what is called the Antarctic Convergence. Here, warmer southward drifting water met with northward moving cold water. This is what we call the Southern Ocean. Here, you find winds of staggering speeds. Tidal waves are even a possibility. The waves were so big, they regularly broke across the deck of resolution. It was also so loud, orders often had to be called out through a trumpet. And the icebergs only grew larger and larger, almost frightening. They could be 60 feet high, or 20 meters, and 2 miles wide, or 3 kilometers. These large bergs towered over the two small ships. By the way, Cook would conduct an interesting experiment when he sent some men in a boat alongside some loose ice next to the bergs. The men hacked away big chunks of ice and hauled it back to resolution. They were astonished to find it was fresh water. Using large baskets, the men began to haul big chunks of ice to the ship. In 48 hours, Cook brought on board more fresh water than he had taken on in Cape Town. This would provide the men with not just drinking water, but water to wash their clothing, something that had been suspended due to the cold and dwindling water supply. If you are wondering why the water was fresh, it's because it had fallen off the top of the icebergs, the source of which is rain and snow, not ocean water. No matter, it was a boon to the expedition, and Cook now understood how he could get fresh water in the future. On December 13th, Resolution and Adventure reached 54 degrees south, the latitude of Beauvais Island. But the currents and the winds had pushed Cook's ships too far east, and they would have no luck finding the rocky headland capped by ice, as reported by Beauvais. As a note, Beauvais Island does exist, but there's not much to find. It is a tiny, uninhabited island, only 3 by 5 miles in diameter, or 5 by 8 kilometers. It would be rediscovered by whalers in 1808. Beauvais Island is the most isolated spot on Earth, since there is no other land within a 1,000 miles, or 1,600 kilometers, in any direction. Cook turned east and south. Resolution and adventure fought through fog, storms, and cold for the next month, as well as the ever-increasing ice pack. In the second week of January, ice surrounded the ships, and Cook feared being trapped. But then the weather finally calmed and temperatures rose, and Cook was able to push further into the ice pack. On January 17, 1773, the two vessels crossed the Antarctic Circle, becoming the first ships to ever do so. The next day, however, the ships would be greeted by thick ice. The men counted 38 icebergs that day. Cook knew his southward advance was done. He had reached 67 degrees 15 minutes south, the furthest south any humans had ever gone. Cook's doubts about the existence of Terra Australis were only reinforced. If there was a southern continent, he believed it was covered in ice. What Cook didn't know was that he had just come within 50 or 75 miles, or about 100 kilometers, of the Antarctic continent. Cook and his ships now headed east. The idea was to stay as far south as the water allowed, making sure no large landmass was anywhere to be found. And then on February 8th, about a third of the way between Africa and Australia, Resolution and Adventure got separated in the fog. Resolution began to fire off a signal gun every hour, but the fog only got thicker and there was no reply from Adventure. The next day, the weather cleared, but there was no sign of the other ship. Cook did not spend too much time searching before ordering Resolution onward. There had always been a chance that the two ships would be separated in a storm, and if that happened, they were to rendezvous at Queen Charlotte Sound in New Zealand. Thus, Resolution headed east. By the end of February, Resolution found itself deep in the southern ocean, the days growing shorter, the ice getting thicker, and the storms growing in intensity by the day. The men saw huge icebergs four times the size of resolution, and they got to witness the calving of bergs, where huge chunks of ice peel themselves off an iceberg and fall into the ocean. It is an amazing sight. It was among the bergs that some of the men almost had a disaster. Cook had some of the small boats out near an iceberg collecting chunks of ice for fresh water. It was then that a nearby iceberg flipped. If you've ever seen a video of this phenomenon, it's pretty amazing but it is also dangerous to nearby boats, especially small ones. In this instance, the ice-collecting boats were almost capsized by the waves created by the flipping berg. Thankfully, the boats managed the turbulence, and no one was pulled overboard. With summer waning, Cook decided it was time to move on. He would run Resolution East, right along the 60-degree south mark, and then in mid-March, 900 miles, or 1,450 kilometers, south of Tasmania, he would then turn northeast towards New Zealand. No one was more thrilled about this than the crew, who had endured months of sailing and freezing temperatures. Resolution would reach the southwestern corner of the South Island of New Zealand at a place called Dusky Bay on March 23, 1773. The men had traveled more than 11,000 miles, or 17,700 kilometers, and had not seen land in 122 days. Dusky Bay, a beautiful and deep sound, offered a relaxing and safe place for Cook, his crew, and Resolution to take a big, deep breath and savor some normalcy. The place was stunning. There were mountains all around, great forests, and waterfalls and streams flowing into the bay, which was protected from the ocean by a line of islands. Cook had spied this location, albeit briefly, on his previous voyage. He decided it was the perfect place to recuperate. Resolution would anchor in deep protected waters so close to the shore a fallen tree was used as a gangway. Cook and Resolution would spend the next six weeks anchored in Dusky Bay. A forge was set up on the shore, and the ship's smaller boats were able to explore the large sound. The men repaired and cleaned the ship, collected timber, fished, and hunted. There were ducks and seals in abundance, the latter for meat as well as blubber. The one downside to the idyllic setting was the rain, which was common. It made using the muskets an iffy affair, as the powder got wet and the weapons wouldn't fire. This made interacting with the natives, the Maori, a risky affair. Regarding the Maori, the native people were not that numerous this far south, and they kept their distance from the strangers. There was one exception, a family the crew befriended. Cook gave them gifts and brought them on the ship. Many of the men showed an interest in the family's teenage daughter, but she remained politely distant from all the advances, disappointing many a man who had not seen a young woman for four months. Communication between both parties was limited, and Cook, no doubt, wished that Tupaya was still with him to translate. No matter, the six weeks at Dusky Bay would rejuvenate Cook and the crew of Resolution. In a lot of ways, Cook developed a sentimental attachment to New Zealand, his time at Dusky Bay a big reason for that. He admired the beautiful and rugged lands. There was a tranquility to the place that he appreciated, and the other men of Resolution felt the same way, writing about the location's natural beauty and serenity. Anyhow, Resolution and her crew finally departed Dusky Bay on April 30th, refreshed and reinvigorated. They knew that Queen Charlotte Sound, at the northwestern tip of the South Island, was next, and, hopefully, a reunion with Adventure. After that, it would be on to Tahiti, which meant women. Resolution reached Queen Charlotte Sound on May 17th, hearing the signal gun of Adventure before seeing her. The ship soon had the reunion, and Cook quickly learned about the adventures of the Adventure. If you recall, Adventure had been separated from Resolution on February 8th. no searched the area for three days, but saw or heard no sign of Cook. Thus, he headed for the planned rendezvous at Queen Charlotte Sound. Furneaux followed the route that Abel Tasman had taken 130 years earlier, coming to Van Diemen's land, a.k.a. Tasmania, to collect water and timber. He would survey the southern and eastern coast of Tasmania, making the first ever British charts of the island. Furneaux had the chance to explore the strait that separates Tasmania from Australia, but he was turned back by dangerous-looking shoals, and thus came away convinced that Tasmania and Australia were one landmass. From Tasmania, Furneaux had then turned toward New Zealand, arriving at Queen Charlotte Sound on May 7th, just 10 days before Cook and Resolution. Now, all of this sounds pretty reasonable, but Cook had reason to be upset with Furneaux. First, Furneaux had not enforced the dietary restrictions Cook had put in place. Thus, scurvy began to rear its ugly head. Even here, on land, there were tents for the sick set up. Yet the men were not eating the local fruits and vegetables, and were thus not getting better. Cook responded by sending one of Resolution's chefs to adventure with orders to impose a better diet on the men. Now, the dietary issues aside, Cook had other reasons to be concerned, and that surrounded what he saw as a collapse of discipline on adventure over the past months. The refusal to impose a better diet on the crew was one manifestation of this, but there was more. There were incidents of men stealing alcohol from the ship's stores and from others on adventure, and the commander of Adventure's Marines, Lieutenant James Scott, more than once openly quarreled with Furneaux, Yet Furneaux allowed the bullying to pass without repercussions. In another more disturbing incident, a group of drunken officers went to the cabin of the ship's astronomer, William Bailey. The men knew Bailey had a bottle of brandy, and they demanded he give it to them. Bailey ignored the men, who responded by breaking down his cabin door. Bailey tried to push the men out and was attacked. Captain Furneaux, whose cabin was right next door, appeared and ordered the men off but there was no mention of the incident in the captain's logs and apparently no repercussions for the attack. One of ferno's biggest failings was his dislike of confrontation. He thus got steamrolled by the schoolyard bully types such as James Scott, and when true conflict broke out, he often shied away from intervening, just hoping things would clear up. It was a lack of leadership, and it caused the crew to lose respect for their captain. That sort of thing can be difficult to regain, as we shall soon see. Now, once Cook got a look at the camp that had been set up on shore, he realized Furneaux was planning on staying at Queen Charlotte Sound for the winter, but Cook quickly nixed that idea. This was simply a stop to pick up supplies. Cook wanted to leave in a few days, and he didn't want to just sail to Tahiti. He wanted to continue to explore the southern waters in search of Terra Australis. Furneaux was appalled at this idea, as was Forster, the botanist. Forster complained bitterly, a common thing for him, saying it was nuts to go sailing the southern waters in wintertime. The cold would only get more bitter and the storms more ferocious. And Forrester pointed out that Cook didn't even think he was going to find anything. But for James Cook, those were his orders. He had been sent to search these waters, and so that's what he was going to do. Now, Cook did mollify the crew by letting them know that the ultimate destination was Tahiti, which all of the men yearned to experience. And so Cook collected supplies and provisions, including scurvy fighting items such as peas, carrots, parsnips, and strawberries. Also, he let loose some of the surviving livestock in New Zealand, including some pigs, sheep, and goats. The sheeps died, but the goats thrived in the rugged New Zealand terrain. Cook's plan was to sail between the latitudes of 41 and 46 degrees, covering the ocean south of the Society Islands. This was further south and east of the previous sweep he had done on his first voyage. After that, he would go north and then west for Tahiti, covering more ocean. Cook was planning on doing more exploring next summer, so his journey was far from over. So if you look at where Cook was sailing, you understand exactly what he was doing. He was essentially circumnavigating Antarctica. Of course, he didn't know Antarctica existed, but that's what he was doing. He was sailing south for a ways and then east. If Terra Australia existed, he would find it, or demonstrate that if it did exist, it was locked in an impenetrable ice pack. In some ways, Cook's plan was audacious. He's basically saying, okay, you want me to look in every nook and cranny to find your precious continent? Fine, I'll do that, even if I think we'll find Jack's squat. His plan would put to rest any ideas of Terra Australis. Resolution and Adventure would thus sail through the Cook Strait, which separates the North and South Islands, on June seventh, 1773. They headed south and then east, just as winter was arriving. It wasn't long before the ships were engulfed in cold and storms. It was a daily struggle to keep the ships together and afloat. Cook sailed his vessels as far south as he could manage and then headed east, just as planned. They found nothing. And then on July 17th, Cook ordered the ships north. However, on July 29th, word arrived from adventure. There was an outbreak of scurvy on the ship, just six weeks since they had sailed. Twenty men were sick, and some would die, including adventure's Cook, the man who was supposed to be preparing the anti-scorbutic foods, such as sauerkraut, to fight off scurvy. Cook was furious at the news. Furneaux, who was suffering from gout, received a list of things he was to do to restore the health of the crew, cut down on salt beef, eat sauerkraut, and anything else deemed helpful to fighting scurvy. And Cook made it clear to Furneaux that he expected these things to be done, or his career would suffer. As a result, the health of adventure improved, but some men fought the dietary changes, and scurvy lingered until they reached Tahiti. And speaking of Tahiti, after heading north, Cook's ships would swing back to the west, aiming for the Polynesian paradise. Resolution and adventure had thus made a big circle to the south and east of New Zealand. The two ships reached Tahiti on August 15, 1773. The men were thrilled, but Cook did not like what he found. The island had been wracked by civil war. Many of the old chiefs and friends of the British had been driven away or killed. cultivation of fruits had been severely disrupted, and the hog breeding that had made Tahitian pork such a delicacy had been mostly wiped out. And the island wasn't the only thing that had changed. The islanders had changed as well. Other ships had arrived after Cook and Endeavour, and the island's economy had altered dramatically in just a few years. It was now very commerce-based, the islanders swapping their goods, including sex, for European items. Anything with iron was highly prized, such as nails and axes. Also, the thieving had gotten even worse than the previous visit. No matter, it is here in the fall of 1773 that we will leave Cook and the expedition for this episode. Next time, we will continue with Cook's second voyage when he will test the limits of resolution's abilities by searching the southern Antarctic waters. So, that is it for today. Thank you for listening. Join us next time when we continue the voyages of James Cook. Please take care. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other podcasts that will stimulate your brain and soul, including Redacted History and The Scientific Melody. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marvelled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of Ancient Egypt.